Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Immigrants from Central America will soon find out if their temporary protected status will be ended. It's allowed them to live here legally for decades. 20 years. In 20 years, people buy houses, they have jobs, they raise families. Now let's assume Honduran TPS is not extended. That's it. Bye-bye. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll take a look back at a big year in immigration policy and a look ahead. We'll also consider what some states are doing about widespread waste of prescription drugs. And we'll meet a man who's got a place to call home for the first time in decades, thanks to an effort to eliminate chronic homelessness. What's going through your mind, Lenny, having those keys in your hand? Chills are going through me. It's a good feeling. And oh, Christmas tree, how lovely are your tiny little branches? That little one on the end, yeah, that's a tabletop tree. Somebody will put in their house in a small apartment on the table, yep. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. As we take a look back on 2017, the issue of immigration has become one of the most contentious in our region. New policies by the Trump administration have New Englanders who've come from all over the world wondering about their status and whether they'll be able to stay. Shannon Dooling covers immigration policy for WBUR and the New England News Collaborative. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start by talking about the immigration policies that uh, President Donald Trump announced early in 2017. That really set the stage for a lot of what happened afterward. Yeah, it sure did. I I think we have to start with the president's original travel ban, right, which barred travel to the U.S. for people from a handful of predominantly Muslim countries. That went into effect immediately. Government agencies weren't even really briefed on it. And the result was just absolute chaos. And that original travel ban has been in the courts ever since, different iterations of that travel ban. Uh, Also this year, we had the resettlement of refugees that was temporarily halted, and the number of refugees who will be accepted into the U.S. going forward was just slashed. And perhaps the most fundamental shift, John, that, that I noticed that was put into place with just the stroke of a pen, really, was this transition to new enforcement priorities, which really just means a shift in which immigrants federal immigration officials are being told to focus on when it comes to removal from the country. So the past administration said the focus should be on serious criminal offenders, right? But with one of Trump's executive orders, all of that changed. And what became clear instantly was that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, now has the green light from the top down to pursue deportation proceedings for anyone who was eligible, regardless of their criminal background. And so a lot of your reporting this last year has been on the people whose lives have actually been changed as a result of that. What what stories stand out to you? What seems to be the overarching theme for the immigrants affected 
is this feeling of overwhelming uncertainty about the future, this fear of the unknown. For instance, since July, we've been covering the arrest of a man named Francisco Rodriguez. Uh, He's a native of El Salvador. He entered the U.S. illegally in 2006. But he's been living in Chelsea, Massachusetts, with federal authorization for several years now, up until this year, when those enforcement priorities that I just mentioned changed and he was put in detention where he remains as the government tries to deport him. So this is a man with no criminal record. Uh, He had not been a priority for deportation. He's the father of three U.S. citizen children, including one uh, born while he was in detention, and Francisco's not yet met that young son. Um, So we've been following the Rodriguez family, really, to learn, I mean, among other things, what happens to a family in this situation. Here's Rodriguez's 10-year-old daughter, Melanie, talking with us back in October about what life is like now living without her father. It feels more like lonely It doesn't feel like, it feels like if there's nothing happening in life. It just feels all normal because we we do everything that we need to do, but we don't like, we we don't spend time now with my dad and it's a little bit more sad. Mm, So we just recently learned that Rodriguez has been granted another temporary reprieve from deportation while an appeal continues to play out in the courts. So we'll continue to watch that story. What are some things you're going to be paying attention to coming up in this next year in 2018? Well, for one, the fate of DACA, that's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is the program that allows young people whose parents brought them to the U.S. illegally to go to school and work in the U.S. There are thousands of DACA students throughout New England. Um, You probably remember, John, that Trump basically hunted on the decision of what to do with DACA and said, okay, Congress, you're up. Uh, Time to come up with a legislative solution. So we'll see where we get with that. Uh, Congress has until March of 2018 to iron something out. The other thing, which has the potential to greatly impact um, greater Boston and surrounding communities, is the future of temporary protected status, or TPS, for El Salvador. We've been hearing a lot about this lately. There are an estimated 6,000 Salvadorans uh, in Massachusetts alone with that protection, which, just as it suggests, is a temporary immigration status that allows people to stay in the U.S. and work if their country has been hit by like a natural disaster or a health epidemic or civil war. And as far as TPS goes, there's one memory in particular that that really sticks out for me. I was standing in the kitchen um, with a mother and daughter, and they were talking about what could be on the horizon for their family? And they were really addressing this for the first time. They told us that they had just always sort of avoided talking about the future, but now they can't really do that any longer. Um, And that's because each member of the family, it turns out, has sort of different legal statuses, different options available to them. The the daughter, 22-year-old Gabriela Portillo Perez, married a U.S. citizen and should be eligible for status through her marriage. But If the U.S. government lets the TPS program expire for El Salvador, then Portillo Perez worries the rest of her family will be sent back to El Salvador. They're the only family I have here. And it's funny because people don't realize, you know, they think of all these people break the law or whatever it is, but they don't realize like we're all human beings and we're all a family. And, you know, you always need your mom. 
So we should expect to hear more about the administration's decision on the fate of TPS for El Salvador early in January. Oh, it, it is a very sad story, Shannon, and I, I'm, I'm wondering what the politicians across New England have been saying and talking about around these issues of immigration. Obviously, we've heard so many stories about people who have made their lives in New England being forced potentially to leave or being split up from loved ones. Are the, are the politicians across this region reacting in any way to these tales of, of human suffering? You know, I think they are. I mean, for the most part, the congressional delegations really across New England have all been pretty vocal in, in their opposition uh, to most, if not all, of Trump's immigration policies. You've seen a lot of local politicians showing up at, at news conferences um, on behalf of some of these immigrants. Uh, you know, I'd say maybe the the most outspoken and, and perhaps sole supporter of some of these immigration policies from from the president has been Maine's Governor Paula Page, who, of course, is is a Republican of a similar stripe, some would say, to, uh, to President Trump. I think on the local level here, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh sort of famously offered to open up City Hall for any immigrant who may be concerned about their security. Uh, So there has been plenty of opposition to the president's policies. Now, I think what could prove to be especially interesting, especially here in Massachusetts, is whether or how the issue of immigration factors into our gubernatorial race in 2018. Of course, we have Republican Governor Charlie Baker here, one of the most popular governors in the the country, Um, and he has issued a few declarations of support for things like extending TPS and DACA, Uh, but he also submitted legislation in the wake of a landmark Supreme Judicial Court decision here Um, And that legislation would give some state law enforcement the authority to actually cooperate with federal immigration officials in some cases. So, of course, pro-immigrants rights advocates really had a fit over that. So I I think we'll just kind of see how things play out once that campaign gears up. Yeah, that question of how state law enforcement interacts with Border Patrol or or federal immigration officials is one of the things we're going to be covering most closely throughout, I think, uh, the course of this next year. Uh, Shannon Dooling covers immigration for WBUR and also for the New England News Collaborative. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. After Shannon and I talked, we got some news about Francisco Rodriguez. His lawyers told Shannon his removal is stayed while an appeal to reopen his asylum case plays out in the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. They say he'll be released from ICE custody in time to spend Christmas with his family. Meanwhile, people from one of the countries with TPS status will soon find out about whether they'll be allowed to stay in the U.S. or face possible deportation. Hundreds of Honduran immigrants in Connecticut and Massachusetts are waiting for word. Meanwhile, as WNPR's Diane Orson reports, violent protests continue in Honduras following a contested presidential election, and the State Department has advised Americans not to travel there. Fausto Canelas was a farmer in Honduras who fled to Connecticut in the mid-1990s. So I came here out of fear for my life because uh, some gang members had stolen a few of my animals, and I tried to recuperate them, and they threatened my life, and I knew that I had to leave. He entered the U.S. illegally in 1996 and says at the time, Honduras was experiencing economic development. 
But things changed two years later when a major hurricane devastated much of the country's infrastructure. A hurricane arrived and it destroyed a lot of the highways, the bridges, the roads. Apart from that, a lot of the governments that have been ruling us for the last 15 or 20 years have had a lot of corruption. Temporary protected status is assigned to certain countries where environmental disasters and armed conflict make it extraordinarily difficult for people to live safely. Honduras was granted that status in 1999. The TPS designation allowed Canelas to gain legal status in the U.S. The 70-year-old grandfather has worked as a janitor, supporting 10 family members back in Honduras. Now the Trump administration is considering whether the temporary conditions that led to TPS for Honduras still exist, or if it should be terminated. If that happens, Canelas reverts back to his previous undocumented status, and that could lead to his deportation. Alex Mayorovich, an immigration attorney in Bridgeport, says because Honduras has one of the longest-standing TPS designations, ending it would have a profound effect on TPS holders and their families. 20 years. In 20 years, people buy houses, they have jobs, they raise families. Now let's assume an individual is a citizen of Honduras with a prior deportation order. So comes next year, Honduran TPS is not extended. That's it. Bye-bye. Honduras has been rocked in the past few weeks by violent protests in the wake of a November presidential election. Earlier this week, an electoral tribunal declared the incumbent president the winner. Almost immediately, the Organization of American States called for new elections, citing deliberate intrusions into the computer system that counted the vote. And supporters of the opposition candidate were again back on the streets. Here's NPR reporter Carrie Kahn describing the scene this week in Tegucigalpa. They're blocking major roads, burning tires in the capital and other cities throughout the country. There's scenes on national TV show the military and national police lobbing tear gas at protesters. Human rights groups say at least 22 protesters have been killed since the election. Fausto Canelas says fear is running high among TPS holders and their families. And if the Trump administration ends TPS for Honduras, Canelas warns the move could backfire. Rather than thousands of deported people returning to Honduras, the political unrest there could lead an even greater number of people to turn around and come back to the U.S. That's Diane Orson reporting. Drug costs are a big problem for millions of Americans, both in their personal lives and also in the amount of money the government has to spend on drugs for elderly Americans through Medicare. But as ProPublica's Marshall Allen found out, there's a big problem with drug waste in America's nursing homes. Now, prompted by his reporting, some states, including two in New England, are trying to solve this problem. Marshall, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me here. How did this issue of unused drugs being thrown out of nursing homes come to your attention in the first place? Well, it came to my attention because I'm working on a series of stories this year at ProPublica that I'm calling Wasted Medicine. And it's all about all of the wasted healthcare spending we have in the U.S. healthcare system. They estimate that our healthcare system squanders about $765 billion a year. That's about a quarter of all the money we spend. And I went on a quest this year to try and identify as many ways as I could that we're wasting money and then also try and point to solutions wherever there were solutions available. Why are they going unused? 
Well, this particular story about the nursing homes um, is looking at uh, nursing home drugs that get tossed away or flushed down the toilet in many cases. Um, what happens is they dispense drugs about a, mo- a month at a time for nursing home patients. They have separate pharmacies that serve nursing homes. They put the drugs on like a little card with like bubbles on it, you know, with the pills in it. And then if for some reason the the drug gets discontinued, let's say the patient passes away or the patient moves out or maybe has some reaction to the drug, they stop the drug, but they still have, let's say they stop it on day seven, they still have, you know, um, 24 or 23 days left of the drugs that are already dispensed in these sterile um, little cards, you know, they call them bingo cards sometimes. Uh, And so a lot of states, you know, they don't have any programs set up to recover those drugs. So the nursing home, it ends up being an expense for them to throw them away. And so they will, these are already paid for, by the way, usually by Medicare or Medicaid or whatever the insurance company is that paid for it, has already paid for the whole month of medication. And so the nursing home ends up stuck with these drugs that they can't do anything with. I talked to some nurses who said they would spend two days a month working with a colleague to pop the pills out of the bubble packs and flush them down the toilet, or they will dispense them in the garbage, which then they go into landfills, or sometimes they'll send them to these big regional incinerators and they just literally toast them and they go up and smoke. So that's a big expense, paying for drugs that don't get used, but you're even talking about an enormous amount of staff time to just deal with this problem. That's huge. It's a huge problem. And, you know, the biggest problem is um, there are patients, and I'm sure people um, who are listening to this show right now are having a really hard time affording their medication. Uh, The Gallup organization did a survey this last year, just in June, where they talked to people from every state and they asked them, what's your number one financial concern? And across the country, the number one response was the high cost of healthcare. And so you have people right now who can't afford their medication. And when they go without their medication, they end up getting sicker, they end up going to the emergency room or getting admitted to the hospital. And so there are people out there who are desperate for these medications that nursing homes right now are too often just throwing away. And so when I went, I went out to this Iowa program called SafeNet RX, and Iowa, unlike most states, actually invested in a solution. So their state government pays about $600,000 a year to run this nonprofit organization that gathers all these drugs from all over the state. They get shipped boxes of Um, medication from long-term care pharmacies and nursing homes in every part of Iowa. They inspect them. They have a pharmacist look at them. They leave them in that sterile packaging, and then they have them redispensed through doctors to patients who need them, and the patients get all these medications for free. So they have everything but narcotics, I should say. That's an important thing to leave out. I mean, just for safety concerns um, with controlled substances and the potential for abuse of controlled substances, they don't include those in their program there. One of the things that is done, aside from just throwing them out in the garbage or having them incinerated, is they end up getting flushed down the toilet. And some of these drugs are actually found in the water supplies locally. That was the most alarming piece to me. I mean, consumers have been told for years not to flush their drugs down the toilet. 
And so I was really shocked when I learned that that's happening fairly routinely in nursing homes all over the country. It just happens to be that that's the least expensive way to dispose of them, and so often they take that route. But also the federal agencies give nursing homes conflicting messages about what to do with these drugs. For instance, the DEA is most concerned that these drugs are going to get stolen or they're going to get into the wrong hands or they're going to get trafficked somehow. And so especially with the prescription narcotics, they want those to be destroyed immediately. And so you'll see even some federal agencies have recommended flushing the drugs. But meanwhile, um, you look at our water supply, and there are a lot of studies being done um, by environmental experts that are showing trace levels of pharmaceuticals showing up in water supplies all over the country. And right now, it's unknown how that affects people. I mean, there are very low levels of these drugs that are showing up, but it's already having an effect on the uh, fish um, in, the, in these water uh, supplies. And, you know, it's really unknown how this will affect us as people. But what is known is that we need to not... Um, we need to stop putting excess pharmaceuticals into our water supply. As a result of some of your reporting, lawmakers in New Hampshire and Vermont and other states are considering putting programs in place kind of like the program in Iowa. What can you tell us about New England states trying to change their practices uh, after some of the reporting that you've done? Well, so in New Hampshire, a senator there, a state senator, introduced a bill to basically put together a committee that would work on um, the logistics and the details it would take to create a program like Iowa's. And so I think that bill um, has been introduced and will be discussed in the upcoming session. And in Vermont, um, leaders from the University of Vermont Medical Center have been talking and having discussions about how this type of program could work in Vermont. One thing they've talked about in Vermont is even having the Iowa program run the Vermont program. I mean, it would be possible to ship the drugs from Vermont to Iowa, um, and that way they could process them there. But all of these conversations are very preliminary, and so, you know, it's unknown what it would look like in Vermont. I know they're having those conversations with leaders in the medical community there. And in um, New Hampshire, obviously, it's more developed with this particular bill being introduced. The cost piece of this seems to be something that so many states, like the state I'm sitting in right now, Connecticut, that have terrible budget problems, uh, might want to consider. I mean, if you're talking about a lot of these drugs being paid for by by Medicaid, well, these are costs that are rolling up to the states. And in some cases, states are having to cut back on the number of Medicaid uh, recipients. I, I don't know, Marshall, how much money do you think it might save a state if they put a program like this in place? Well, it could save a lot of money, but you know the way the healthcare industry has looked at saving money. You know, um, you, sometimes you need to invest some money to save money down the road, and the healthcare industry has tended to be kind of penny wise, pound foolish. You know, we don't want to spend a penny today, <laughs> even though it'll save us a lot of money down the road. And so, what we know from the Iowa program is it does cost about six hundred thousand dollars to run the program, but this year they're on par to recover about $6 million worth of drugs. And that $6 million doesn't include the money that you save by keeping your people compliant with their medication, which hopefully keeps them healthy, which hopefully saves them from going to the emergency room or being admitted to the hospital. So the potential to save is great, but it does require, I think, to do it the way they're doing it in Iowa anyway, which is where they have the most established program, it does require some investment up front to achieve the savings down the road. Marshall Allen covers health care for ProPublica. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, a Boston man gets a home for the first time in years. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Advocates for the homeless across New England have made it a goal to end chronic homelessness for good. It's a big undertaking, especially in a big city like Boston, where officials have said they want to end it by this time next year. Every night, about 1,500 people sleep in Boston's emergency homeless shelters. Many others sleep on the streets. And about 30% of them are considered chronically homeless. The city's trying to tackle this problem one person at a time. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker introduces us to one man who was recently housed through these efforts. All right, so we have a unit. It is an elevated building. Those are words Lenny Higginbottom has waited decades to hear. That is yours, Mr. Simple as that. His own place to call home. About to cry. I am crying. It's so meaningful. Like, he's getting housed. Like, this is so great. I can't wait to share this with the rest of the team. Stephanie Brown is one of the advocates from Pine Street Inn, the homeless services agency, who encouraged Tegenbottom to come to this so-called housing surge in June. The city has hosted eight of the events since 2015 to match individuals who are homeless with housing resources. At this one, the Boston Housing Authority had 56 apartments set aside for people who had been chronically homeless. 52-year-old Higginbottom had been trying for the past year to find an apartment. He even had a Section 8 rental assistance voucher to present to private landlords. And for whatever reasons, for things from his past, they just kept resurfacing. Labels wouldn't run to him um, because of his past criminal history. And, you know, he's really turned it around. Like, he's been doing all that he can to prove that, like, that's in the past. Like, I'm somebody different. You just found out in there that you're getting an apartment. Yes, I did. After 24 years of being homeless, finally came through. 24 years. Yeah, in and out of jail, hanging out on the streets, having what I thought was fun, but all that time flies by. Then when you really knuckle down and just put in the footwork, you get to this point when you receive something like this, a blessing like this. It's pretty good. You know, finally did it. Welcome to your new home. The week after receiving the good news, Lenny Higginbottom gets to see the apartment that's been held for him. It's in a BHA building in Roxbury. It's beautiful. It's a lot of room. 378 square feet. That's a lot of personal space for someone who's used to living in crowded shelters and tiny prison cells. Higginbottom did several stints behind bars on drug charges. Here in the studio apartment, there are some surprises. What? A bathtub? You ain't seen these in a thousand years. <laughs> so you like it? Yes, sir. Are you saying yes to the apartment? Yes, I am. Welcome to Amy Street, Mr. Higginbottom. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What's going through your mind, Lenny, having those keys in your hand? Chills are going through me. It's a good feeling. If I would have gave up, I wouldn't be standing here now. If I would have listened to people or believed the people the saying this couldn't happen with what's going on now, once again, I wouldn't be here now. Higginbottom's experience with homelessness began when his second wife kicked him out, dropping him off at a homeless shelter. He had no place else to go and no money or job. He's the first to acknowledge his part in the way his life went. He admits he wasn't a good husband. 
I was the headache. I was the idiot. I was the knucklehead. He says he just didn't care much about anything at that point in his life. But it wasn't all his doing or in his control. He says he knew from a young age, after his father died when he was six, that something wasn't right in his mind. He didn't know then that it was called mental illness. Higginbottom dropped out of school in ninth grade. He worked as a home health aide and on a hotel banquet staff. Around age 20, he got married for the first time. And he was writing and recording rap music as a member of the Boston group Rap Masters and DJ3. You can hear him on this record. Higginbottom says the group got some radio play and even did a few shows at the Apollo Theater. But also around that time, he started smoking crack cocaine and became addicted. He knew the danger of drugs. His group even rapped about it. When I listen to it today, we were visionaries because we explained about the drugs and what people were turning to. How people were turning back on you, try to be your friends and actually really tricking you. Okay, number five. It's move-in day, almost a quarter century after Higginbottom first became homeless. Hi. Hello. Hello, and your name is? Leonard Higginbottom. Leonard Higginbottom. Mm -hmm. Excellent, you are letter D. His mental health is stable. He says he uses talk therapy, relaxation techniques, and psychiatric medication to control depression and bipolar disorder. Higginbottom also says his addiction is under control. He gets supplemental security income because of disc problems in his back, sciatica, and other physical conditions. Now he needs to get some things, like everything, to furnish an apartment. Someone's about, it will be out in just a minute to help you go shopping. He's with one of his case managers, Retha Watson. She's a housing placement specialist at Pine Street Inn. They're at a big warehouse in Acton run by the nonprofit Household Goods. It's like a home store full of donated items that are free for people in need. You can sit down on it. I'm just looking. They pick out a small couch, mattress, box spring and bed frame, kitchen table and chairs, framed artwork, a television, linens, lamps, and kitchenware. What about this one? You either like it or you don't like it. You like those or no? Movers hired by Pine Street Inn haul all of the stuff to Higginbottom's new apartment the same afternoon. He immediately sets everything up and unpacks. Higginbottom has already been sleeping on the floor here for a week. Once he had the apartment, he didn't want to leave. He cleaned it, even scrubbed the floors on his hands and knees. Now he needs to do everything in his power to keep his home. It's so true how, you know, the real work starts. Yeah, now it can be, you know, for flow a little bit more, with more energy, more mm-hmm. stabilized, and now really be more focused. Retha Watson will be here for him checking in by phone and in person a couple times a week. When you say the real work starts now, what do you mean by that, Rita? Whatever his needs are. If he needs help with budgeting, just like really getting adjusted. And to really know like he's not by himself. He has people that's willing to help him. Higginbottom says he turns to a higher power for help too. He's so grateful for getting to this point that he stops and thanks God before walking out the door. Ashley blessed the whole building. Of his new home. Bless all the staff workers and providers so they have the strength to get more of us off the streets and be blessed. Ashley anoint this home 
So never be safe and never be in my caring hand to take care for you and, and me. You're listening to a story by WBUR's Lynn Jolliker about Lenny Higginbottom. He's a man who's been chronically homeless for the better part of a quarter century. Thanks to the city of Boston's initiative to end chronic homelessness, Higginbottom now has a place to call his own. But for someone who's been homeless for a long time, moving into an apartment can be a huge adjustment. One of the things Lenny Higginbottom is enjoying the most about having an apartment is cooking. He's heating up some soup he made the other day. It's chock full of vegetables, beans, meat, and pasta. Some friends have come over for homemade Italian food. Pasta shells, right. I did the little pasta and made the sauce. He wants to get into baking and make sweet potato pie like his mother used to make. Higginbottom is feeling a lot less stress than he did in his old life. It's peaceful. It's nice, quiet, and relaxing. He says he spends time praying and meditating. He learned relaxation exercises during years of therapy for depression and bipolar disorder. But sometimes he needs to escape the quiet of being alone in his apartment. The 52-year-old is very much a people person. For the last 24 years, he lived mostly in homeless shelters and sometimes on the streets. He did prison time on drug charges. There were always other people around. That's one reason Higginbottom hasn't left his old life behind. On any given day, you'll find him somewhere in downtown Boston, like outside the Dunkin' Donuts at Washington and Boylston Streets, where we meet up with him panhandling. Morning, how's it going? Get the can on the way out. Morning, keep cut on the way out. Have a good one. Higginbottom says if he stopped doing this, he'd miss it. Because I'm networked with a lot of good people down here, professors, lawyers, doctors, business owners, and they all, you know, gave me a lot of advice. Advice and encouragement to keep improving his life and trying to get housing, which he did. He says there are plenty of rude people who pass by on the street, though, too. So panhandling is hard, kind of like a job. What do you say to the people who don't quite understand it and and don't think it's like a job and think... Well, now you have the apartment and you have the disability check. Why do you still need to ask other people to give you their money? 753 does not last a month. When you, you take out some of that rent right then, you pay the phone bill, you've got a phone, uh, then you fill the fridge up, food stamps or not, whatever. Thank you, have a good one, man. Yep. Higginbottom pays $211 a month in rent. He gets supplemental security income from the Social Security Administration, the $753, because of spine and nerve problems. On this day, he makes about $20 panhandling. Pocket change to take the tea or bus or get something he needs for his apartment, he says. But that's just a short part of the morning. Higginbottom's next stop is less than a block away at St. Francis House. He spent countless days in this shelter. It seems just about everyone here knows him. It's called the atrium. What's going on, everybody? They sit down here in the daytime, play games. Higginbottom comes back here several times a week. He mingles, sharing his story with people at the shelter, telling them about programs they can get into, and encouraging them to believe they, too, can break out of homelessness. You're hanging in and you're doing and just keep going on. The gold pot is right there. Before you get to the rainbow, it'll be set right there. Oh, you got that right. Stay strong. You keep on that blueprint you're using now. Even though Higginbottom holds no official position, he calls this his advocacy or outreach work, and it clearly fuels him. Lenny was giving back before he had a lot to give back. 
Karen LaFrasia is president of St. Francis House. She's known Higginbottom for all of the 20 years she's worked here. To have an authentic voice like Lenny and to know his struggles and then to see him come out on the other side with a place to live, it's a different kind of hope that you can give some people. And what happens for so many of our guests is that they've lost hope. Higginbottom's hope waned at times over the years, especially when landlords turned him away because of his criminal record, even though he had a Section 8 voucher to subsidize the cost of rent. There was always some barrier to overcome or red tape to clear. But then, early this past summer, he got one of dozens of apartments the Boston Housing Authority has set aside for people who've been chronically homeless. So do you do any of the activities that they have in this building? Uh, yeah, well, when I catch them, yeah. I play dominoes with the guys downstairs. Retha Watson is one of Higginbottom's case managers. She's a housing placement specialist at Pine Street Inn, and she checks in with Higginbottom over the phone or at his apartment a couple times a week. You're doing excellent. I'm proud of you. She's been working with him to get a cell phone. She talks with him about budgeting his money. Watson and Higginbottom's other case managers make sure he keeps up with visits to his psychiatrist and primary care doctor. And Watson encourages Higginbottom to stay focused and disciplined. His depression and bipolar disorder seem to be in check. But he also used to struggle with addiction to crack cocaine. He acknowledges he still drinks some alcohol and smokes marijuana. He says those never caused a problem for him. So if you see people doing something that kind of reminds you of your past, what do you do? Well, something that might trigger me to go back to that past. You know? So you walk away? If you got to use that strength, walk away. I'm glad, like, he's talking about remember when, you know, um, because of his addiction. Um, you have to be real, real careful of your interactions with other people on the street. One bad decision away. He can lose everything. Higginbottom's biggest goal is to gain one more thing now that he has a home. Relationships with his four children, who range in age from 16 to 31. Because when I wasn't in their life and I was homeless, it was the thoughts of them to get back to them if I ever get a house. So they helped me without being in my life, but they were in my life and my thoughts, my prayers, and in my heart. His hope shows no limits now. That story was by WBUR's Lynn Jolliker. Coming up, the big business of tiny trees. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The pine tree is an icon of New England. It's on our flag, after all. And this time of year, pine trees are big business. But as we'll hear, pines aren't all alike. Patrick Scahill first takes us on a search for the increasingly uncommon pitch pine. It's a steep walk up a hill off Candlewood Road in Haddam. Beside me is Emery Gluck. He's a forester with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Gluck says for the last 30 years, he's passed this hill wondering if the trees perched on top were pitch pine. And I thought there might be because there's 
scattered throughout the valley here. There, there was a couple of pitch pines that might have had their seed source from up here. Today, pitch pine is one of Connecticut's hardest to find trees. When colonists arrived centuries ago, it was everywhere, but generations of logging and environmental changes pushed the tree back to just a few select spots in the state. Gluck says pitch pine and the shrubby plant scrub oak that it's often found with thrive in areas scorched by fire. But today, we have a scarcity of fires from an ecological point of view now, and that's probably the main reason why uh, pitch pine and scrub oak is one of our 13 imperiled ecosystems. Which means the state is actively working to preserve the plant, partially through controlled burns. Where Gluck and I are today had a naturally occurring fire in 2016. And as we climb through a graveyard of burnt branches and toppled trunks, Gluck and I finally make our way to the hill's top. It's windy, and our view of the valley would be almost clear if not for a few pitch pines resolutely clinging to the outcropping's rocky ledge. We approach, and Gluck describes the pitch pine's bark. It's quite flaky, almost like a red pine, but it curls out. The red pine's more flat. It curls out on both ends, and uh, called a, an alligator-like bark. These trees twist upward, curling like bonsais because of the scant soil. But healthy pines can get quite tall with some in Connecticut reaching up to 80 feet. When people think of pitch pine, they don't think of Connecticut. They think of Cape Cod and the New Jersey Pine Barrens. But pitch pine's story is one of colonial America. Connecticut, was, as well as the rest of New England, had a rich history in, in having pitch pine because uh, it was very important to the early colonists for tar, pitch, and, and turpentine. Tar and pitch from the tree were an important resource for the English Navy. And Gluck says way back when, there were even laws on the books in New Hampshire allowing taxes to be paid in tar instead of currency. And a barrel of tar offset 20 shillings worth of taxes. Today, the tree is much less common in New England. A lack of wildfires has been compounded by threats like the southern pine beetle. But vestiges of pitch pine's past remain in our names. And that's why we have Tar Kiln Road in Voluntown and Tar Barrel Hill in North Stonington. Or spots like Candlewood Mountain in New Milford, which, Gluck says, is covered with thousands of white pines, but today only has about two pitch pines left. That's WNPR's Patrick Scahill reporting. A much more common pine this time of year can be found at the roadside Christmas tree stand, all perfectly sized to scrape your living room ceiling. But as Jennifer Mitchell reports from Maine Public Radio, growers are seeing a new trend, the tiny tree. This little green one here seems to need a home. I don't know, Charlie Brown. Remember what Lucy said? This doesn't seem to fit the modern spirit. Remember this scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas when Charlie Brown goes shopping for a tree for the neighborhood Christmas play? He passes by a lot filled with big, flashy trees and chooses instead a scrawny sapling, which draws withering scorn from his friends. <laughs> what a tree! I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Or perhaps Charlie Brown was just ahead of his time. Our, our business is leaning towards uh, shorter trees than it used to. We used to sell a lot of eight, nine, ten-foot trees. That's Dana Graves, who's been growing Christmas trees for more than 40 years with G&S Christmas Tree Farm. Today, he's showing off a row of neat, bushy little balsam firs for sale, none higher than four feet, at Sprague's Nursery in Bangor. That little one on the end, yeah, that's a tabletop tree. Somebody will put in their house in a small apartment on the table, yep. The farm still produces plenty of taller trees, too, but Graves says it's pretty rare these days to get orders for anything higher than seven feet. Found a good one, huh, guys? Yep. Awesome. Want it wrapped up? 
Several miles away at Carpenter Tree Farm in Old Town, Jeff and Jillian Woodbury are complete newbies in the Christmas tree business. It's just their second season. But they too say they're finding some brisk trade in catering to customers who are looking for something other than that giant centerpiece tree. Like these guys said, they're on the second floor of an apartment house, so they got to climb two sets of stairs. We get a lot of college kids um, or small apartments, so they're looking for something smaller, more manageable to get in and out of their apartment, maybe up some stairs. There was one couple with six flights of stairs, I believe. So that was a long haul with a big tree. We, they were looking for something more four foot or smaller. Makes it much easier for them. It's all part of a trend, says Marsha Gray with the National Christmas Tree Association. Older Americans, she says, and those with no kids at home have always been more likely to demand a small tree, but they didn't have many options. In the past, small trees, what we call a tabletop, now at times it was the top of a bad tree or it was you know, a tree that got a ding at the bottom or something. Now we have growers specifically culturing trees for, to be a tabletop. That entails special trimming so the mini tree bushes out into a nice full shape. Another factor that helped develop a little tree market was an interior decorating trend that started about 10 years ago as homeowners started putting up multiple trees in dining rooms, living rooms, porches, and windows instead of just the one big central tree. We saw a lot of parents buying small trees for their children's bedrooms. They each got their own little tree. All of this contributed to the emergence of a burgeoning little tree industry, which is just now coming into full flower. A healthy market for little trees could also be good news for a farmer's bottom line, as they take less time to grow. It takes a full decade to grow a six-foot tree, while small trees can be turned over in about half the time. And that, in turn, has another benefit, says Gray. Keeping large tracts of land in constant production helps offset greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, something she says is important to many consumers who seek a natural Christmas tree. Younger trees are much more efficient at taking in the carbon dioxide and outputting the oxygen. The older a tree gets, the slower that process. So by keeping these young trees planted, harvested, replanted, that whole cycle, we're really ensuring some very productive trees as far as oxygen oxygen production. Along the same line, some growers are offering tiny potted trees that can be set out after the season. But Gray says that effort has met with limited success, simply because not everyone has a green thumb. I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. Americans will buy about 40 million trees of all size this year and spend an estimated $2 billion in the process. Gray says there will always be a market for a big, impressive tree that skims the cathedral ceiling, but there's no longer a Charlie Brown stigma to having a little one. That's Jennifer Mitchell in May. We're going to leave you with a different kind of holiday cheer now. In Puerto Rico, Christmas is a really big deal. But for the thousands who've been forced to leave the island after Hurricane Maria, that means celebrating Christmas this year in an unfamiliar place. WNPR's Ryan Karen King has the story of how the Puerto Rican community in Hartford, Connecticut, welcomed some new arrivals with a holiday tradition that reminds them of home.
Meredith Torres Garcia has been living in a hotel room with her husband and two kids after losing part of her house in Puerto Rico to Hurricane Maria. She says spending the Christmas season in the northeastern cold has been hard for her family. But on Saturday night, in the noisy atrium of Hartford City Hall, it felt a little bit like Christmas on the island. My kids are happy. We feel like home in here right now. Torres Garcia was at a Christmas celebration called the Paranda, where members of Hartford's Puerto Rican community greeted families displaced by the storm with a musical parade and a hot meal. A traditional Puerto Rican paranda is where carolers go from one house to the next, sharing food, drinks, and song late into the night. The celebration was held inside because Hartford is cold. It even snowed Saturday night. But Torres Garcia says the paranda in Hartford made her proud to be Puerto Rican. It's part of us, what we are. Um, we are loud and we like to dance and we like to sing and we like to do all that stuff and that, that only means Puerto Rico. Carmen Cotto grew up in Hartford and had recently moved to the island before the hurricane flooded her house. She says the event started the Christmas season for families who have focused more on recovering from the hurricane. Christmas hasn't really started for many and this was like our kickoff for Christmas. Coto's father, Angel Luis, also came to live on the mainland after the storm. He says he enjoyed the night's festivities, but he wants to go home as soon as he can. It's different, different, different. It's nice over here, but it's not no place like Puerto Rico. Coto says he was sad during the paranda, as he thought about all the people still suffering on the island. But he says at the same time, he was also happy, because this was the first time they had gotten to celebrate since the storm. That's Ryan Karen King reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.